the reason all this um, language about the collegiate model is being evoked is because it's a house of cards. If if players start to benefit from their name, image, and likeness and start to have more agency in capitalizing on their value, that again, for some of these athletes, this is their this is the pinnacle for them, their college career, then it's at some point going to be diminishing returns for the university because they have been artificially absorbing all of that value. So if there's a crack in the armor and, and, and athletes begin to have access, you don't know what that's going to do. You don't know how that's going to shift things. But there's a good chance it will shift the revenue flow um, in a way that doesn't just stream 100% toward universities and conferences. And so there's a reason why the NCAA is um, obfuscating about this. There's a reason why they want to appear to be doing something when they're not. It's their signature move. It's like this fake out, like, see, we're doing something, but we're really not. Because they want to maintain, and they even say it, They want to protect the collegiate model. And the collegiate model is we absorb all the value of athletes who play athletics in our member institutions. Welcome to Going Deep. Sports in the 21st Century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. I'm Matt Bush, the news director for Blue Ridge Public Radio, and I help the Shoops produce Going Deep. In this episode, we continue our conversation from the prior one, where we looked at the NCAA's decision on October 29, 2019, to allow college athletes the opportunity to benefit from their name, image, and likeness while they are in school. We went through several bullet points from the NCAA in the first episode. We have a few more to go in this one, and we pick right up where we left off couple bullet points still left and this one ought to be a doozy just seeing john's notes written down next to it (laughs) (laughs) ensuring rules are transparent focused and enforceable and facilitate fair and balanced competition i see sean miller's name written down here next to it so we're going to get to that and it isn't just about how john held him to 45 in high school (laughs) (laughs) we combined for 47 that night (laughs) hey it's not bad (laughs) um Ramogi talked about this in the prior episode, or in his episode, that there isn't a whole lot of balanced competition now in Mm-mm. football. Really, it's down to Clemson, Alabama, LSU, and Georgia. Women's basketball, it's UConn and Baylor and maybe mm-hmm. at two or three other schools. So there isn't balanced competition right now. No. no, there's not. In the coaching world, you think of uh, jobs as haves and have-nots. And you think about the haves and have-nots in the NFL, in college, even in high school, you know. uh, uh, And the haves are places where you have everything that you need there to succeed. There's some jobs that, uh, I'll promise you, Bill Belichick ain't going there and going to win. It's 
just not going to happen. It's a have-not job. Now, in the NFL, you'd like to think that there's 32 jobs that could all be even. But even in the NFL, there's some haves and have-nots. But no matter what, say, you know, a, 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 a Tulsa does, or no matter what uh, a, a lower Division One ECU does, they're never going to compete with Clemson and Oklahoma. It's just, it's not going to happen. There's a have and there's a have not. Um, The people who benefit a great deal from this system right now are the people who are willing to stretch the rules bend the rules, do something unethical outside of the rule book to become a have. You know, I always have compared collegiate football and this not wanting to uh, pay athletes is kind of like prohibition. Just because there's a rule saying athletes are not allowed to get paid does not mean athletes are not getting paid. It's just some of these programs have decided, I'll do whatever we got to do to be a half. It's not (laughs) coincidental that it's these programs in the Deep South that are willing to do it. And that's when you were talking about Sean Miller. So, yeah, I want to say that you said, you know, you said just because there's a prohibition on paying players doesn't mean it isn't getting done. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Sean Miller. We're using this as an example again. I'm making jokes about other programs and all that sort of stuff. But this was one that the FBI investigated. He's on tape agreeing to offer a player a $10,000 a month stipend. I mean, I don't even know. He's he, I, I got I got fired for something I didn't even do, and we didn't even do anything wrong. This guy's on tape, uh, you know, agreeing to offer a guy a ten thousand dollars stipend. In the coaching world, there's coaches that I know, and there's coaches that head coaches know are willing to do unethical things. head coaches that pretend they don't know that 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 keep their distance just enough to do it and everybody knows who those people are and one of the things i always found in recruiting was whenever i was going against uh, a, another program and i found out oh son of a gun this guy's going to recruit him from that program that meant generally i'm out of the game because I was not willing to do some of the underhanded things to get a player. I was willing to work harder than anybody, but I wasn't going to do some of those underhanded things. Mm. People would be shocked how much of that is going on. And it's the people that are willing to do it right now, (laughs) the ones winning a lot of football games, a lot of basketball games, and they're the ones that don't necessarily want the culture to change because they've got it set up pretty clean gene right now for them. I think there's also another way to look at that and um, that 
that in an unjust system, sometimes the people who are breaking the rules are kind of taking into their own hands a problem that they see. So I don't think we should just easily demonize all coaches who have broken rules. That's a very good point. In the collegiate sports model. I think there are some people who have learned how to make it work for them too. But I think we also know some coaches who they really cared about these young men and they see how wrong it is. And so, yeah, they, they slipped them some money and yes, they get, they made sure they had a car or a phone. And so I don't, I want us to get away from this binary of rule breakers and rule keepers because the rules are BS in, in the NCAA. I mean, those rules are, are built on a system that disadvantages the players. And, like, read that again, the part that, that about Sean Miller. But don't I'm going to lose my thought if you interrupt me. Ensuring right rules are transparent, focused, and enforceable and facilitate fair and balanced competition. Okay. So, again, I just – this is the drum I'm beating today, but it's – these are – this is just the old saw of the NCAA. None of that exists now. If anyone has ever seen the rule book – of the NCAA, it's ridiculous. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages that nobody understands. They're not transparent. In fact, they are so obfuscated that people don't even understand. People who are compliance officers in schools don't even understand what's a violation and what is not. It's so messed up that coaches every year have to take tests to make sure they know what's violations, and they cheat their butts off. They have somebody sitting there going, you know, the answer to that might be B, you know. I mean, this the, the rules are not transparent. The rules are not enforceable. That's why we have so many examples of all this uneven ways that rules are enforced. It depends on the university. Some universities say, bye, we're not going to pursue that. Others universities like UNC say, oh, no, did we do something wrong? Okay, we'll fix it. I mean, it all, these, that's not enforceable. That's just, a, that's just a kind of nefarious culture. single one of these bullet points is it's it's almost like a fairy tale let's let's put this out here and if we say it enough times it's true and there is no such thing as fair competition there is no such thing as transparency in their rule book and there is no such thing as enforceability in their rule book so i don't know i'm just going to call bs on the whole thing I'd, I'd like to acknowledge one thing that you said and, and you're right there were coaches that made conscious decisions of i don't care what the rule says this is what's right to do by this young man and i i want to acknowledge that does happen 
as well. I, and I want to ask you, this is a story you had told me once for something completely different for something we did here at the news department about a player that you saw, I think, when you were at North Carolina, who on during a spring break, one of your football players, you were at a softball game, I think you said, with your daughter. Yeah. And this is a player. Purdue. Oh, was that with Purdue? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, sorry. So it was at Purdue. You saw a player that, you know, during the spring break could not go home. I believe they were from Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what, tell us that story. Yeah. So I remember over spring break when we lived in West Lafayette and I was coaching at Purdue, my daughter and I went to a softball game. The team, the softball team was still in town over spring and a player on our team that I had recruited was actually from Paris, France. And he was at the game. We're about five days into spring break. And I said, what are you doing here? You didn't go home? And he said, I didn't have any money to go home. And while he was there, he didn't also have a uh, training table wasn't open. And he didn't Meaning have any. He couldn't eat. He couldn't eat. And, uh, and so Mary Elizabeth, our daughter, and I were ordering hot dogs and stuff like that and certainly giving him uh, food as we were buying food. And after the game, I know he went to the softball locker room uh, where a friend of his on the softball team would bring out food to him so he could eat as well. And that's why he was going to all the softball games to grab some food. But indeed, that was an instance where we certainly bought him a couple of hot dogs. Is that illegal under NCAA? Yes. yes that's, there's no doubt. That's illegal. So I think that just goes back to your point about mm-hmm. what rule breaking is. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a rule break. You broke the rule, but it doesn't right. seem like that's yeah. an unethical thing to break or that's an immoral right. thing to break by, by certain certainly. Yeah. So some of the folks who've come out in support of, of the NCAA and kind of puffed up this narrative that this is some big groundbreaking thing that they've done – have talked about that they need um, they need to make sure that no ethical standards are violated. And again, ethical standards is a it's a it's an amorphous term. Somebody who's in the mob can have an ethical standard, you know. And then let's, I'm, I'm not lie. As you were telling the stories about how head coaches will stay yeah. far enough away not to know so that they can't yeah. get implicated and then have their yeah. sort of underlings be the ones who might take the fall. Yeah. That sounds like the mob. Yeah, right. that's, and those and those are ethical standards. Yeah, you know, so ethics is a morally um, empty term, and so what that really means it's it's code language for we're not going to break the code of the NCAA, which is there's a pecking order, the money flows this way, it don't flow that way, and we're not going to let it violate that standard of the way power is distributed in this particular institution. If you want to put the California bill over and against what the NCAA is doing, it's about power, and the the California bill is trying to give players more power, more agency, and the NCAA farcical (laughs) attempt to suggest they're going to change their rules is an attempt for them to maintain their hold on that power. That, that's what these two things are about. One more bullet point to go. What is it? <laughs> My gosh, what else? <laughs> Me? 
making clear the distinction between collegiate and professional opportunities. <laughs> I, I want to give an example here, a personal example that we have here at our station, Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're doing a diversity study right now about whom we featured uh, in our news, in our original news that we've produced, as well as our two podcasts that we produce here, including this show. We have, have a student from UNC Asheville who's doing the study for us. We paid her as a station to do it. This is part of her academic learning. She is a computer science and new media major. So doing a study like this that we would publish certainly would fit into her academic studies. Mm-hmm. Is that a collegiate or professional opportunity? Exactly. And as an ath- if she were an athlete there, would we have been able to pay her? No. Those lines are not drawn in any other vocational track in higher education. They, they don't try to make that distinction anywhere else. In fact... When one's work moves into a kind of professional mode, mode, like if I wrote a paper as a religion major and it got published, that would be a very positive thing, you know, kind of when I move into that territory. Absolutely. And let's say the, there would have been benefits for the university you went to. Absolutely. If you did that. UNC Asheville has publicized that right. she is doing this study for us. It is a benefit to them. Right. And so, again, it comes down to, like, this. why is this distinction unique to athletics, and what is at stake in it? And it's just propped up by this um, narrative about collegiate athletics. Yeah. To be clear, though, scholarship athletes are allowed to have a job. Okay? So uh, that needs to be clear. They're allowed to. They're not allowed to be paid an excessive amount for that job because it might be a famous person or someone well-known. But here's the stickler that people don't realize. If you play Division I college football or Division I college basketball, I already talked about the tracking devices that people are using to occupy your time 24-7, 365 days a year. You physically are unable to get a job, and that's very intentional. But the laws, the legally... One is allowed to get a job, say, at the mall, working at Abercrombie and Fitch. You are allowed to if you are paid just the same rate that everybody else is. The issue is you can't you can't do that and do everything else that you're called to do as an athlete. But I would argue that when you look at the fine print and the rules about what kinds of jobs players can have, if you use this example of the student working mm-hmm. here, at the, yes. they wouldn't be able to have that job. If they're using anything about their identity as an athlete or their connections to an athletic department or their knowledge about sports or their yeah, anything let's say, about Let's that. put it this way. Say we wanted to have a student athlete from UNC Asheville or one of the other universities mm-hmm. in the area come on here and talk about their particular experience in no, college. We could not pay them for we that. We could not pay them for that. No. Now, not that we pay people who come on this show to begin with, but right. it's certainly much larger media organizations, particularly cable right. news, they pay the people who come on there right. and talk. I want this to be clear, though. The study that you're doing, if the person doing that study happened to be the point guard at UNC Asheville, that's legal 
if you're just paying them that normal amount. Now, we paid them 50, we paid her 50 hours. Now, I would imagine mm. a student athlete would then not have 50 hours to be able to do that, no. right? Right. And so the whole point is moot in general. There's no way the point guard, even at UNCA here in town, is going to be able to give you 50 hours of work. Uh, and it's intentionally structured like that. But, again, just pushing back, somebody from the NCAA would say, oh, you are allowed to have a job. Yeah, but then why does it never happen? The reason it never happens is because I make sure I know literally where you are 24-7. session, right? That just might. So to wrap this up, I want to go back to some things we said earlier. I think they're related, and I'm curious to see if I'm correct in thinking these two are related. So at the beginning of the first episode of this, Marsha, you brought up white supremacy when talking about the NCAA. Mm -hmm. There might be some who wonder why you brought that up. So why did you make that? Why did you bring that up? And why did you make sort of the correlation between white supremacy and the NCAA? Well, number one. Pretty much all of the people who directly benefit from the way that NCAA is set up are white people. It's it's a white dominant institution that is um, on all of its member institutions. The majority of them are white dominant institutions. White supremacy is a way of being socialized in this country. It's a way we think. It's a part of the way we do business. And there are many hallmarks and touchstones of white supremacy that are very, very clear in the NCAA and the way it does business. I talk about this in my book, Touchdowns for Jesus. Um, I've mentioned one today, and it's around power and the way power is distributed and the way power is used and the way power is or isn't shared. And the fact that the NCAA is based on a decision-making system in which those most impacted have the least amount of power in making decisions that will impact them is a hallmark of white supremacy. Also, either or thinking is a part of white supremacy, and the NCAA thrives on that kind of you're either a rule breaker or you're a rule keeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could go on and on. There are many, many character traits of white supremacy, but our higher, our institutions of higher learning are great examples of places where white supremacy is is the culture, and it that's different than saying they're all in the KKK, it's saying they, um, those institutions embody these um, character traits of white culture that, that assume that white ways of doing things are the right ways of doing things. And they don't see them as white ways of doing things. They just see them as the right way to do things. And that might be another show where we could talk sometime about you know, kind of look at it in a more nuanced way because it's hard for us to see it. It's really hard for us to see it. We were talking about the competitive balance or really imbalance in major revenue college sports. And John, you said it is not a surprise, and this is with all due respect to the other 
conferences, but it is not a surprise to you that conferences that hail from the Deep South, the ACC and the SEC, are the ones that are predominantly the strongest in football and men's basketball, the two major revenue sports. Why would you say that it's not a surprise that it's the Deep South where this is thriving the most? It's been my experience that coaching football at the University of North Carolina felt like you were working on a plantation. The administrators, high up administrators, would refer to players as boys, would tell me how lucky they are to just be here, and would use language that just could have been early 19th century, and we could have been talking about slaves in a tobacco field, and it felt like that sometimes. It really did. I think in the South, somehow, some way, college football especially, with this field where these boys play on the field has been a way to keep that identity alive. That identity of of white supremacy. And that was really, really hard for me to swallow at North Carolina. And I didn't always, there were opportunities for me, I think, to stand up to it and there were days where I felt like a coward that I didn't when a powerful person uses language around you including the n-word even from people powerful people boosters at the university and you just don't even know how to respond I'd like to think that now 10 years later not even 10 years later years later though I'd have the courage to to say some things differently in the moment. The optics of unplayed, uh, an unpaid labor force, most of whom are black, plays just fine in the Deep South. I think um, there is there is a culture in which um, in the South it's 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 just much more kind of palatable for for white people to to think well that's where they belong, um, and that doesn't mean it's not other places. But the South has a, a history of terror that has kept those roles in place. Um, and it's and it's something that's internalized by all of us on some level. Um, the other thing I want to say that John is naming a dynamic that is very much at work in collegiate sports, and that is what Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, calls white solidarity. And that is that when we're around other white people and we hear them say something that's overtly racist, we don't say anything. Even if we disagree, we allow that to stay in circulation in white in white groups, in white communities, in white spaces, um, and and it's because there's this unspoken solidarity of like eh, that was uncomfortable, but 
no harm done, right? And and it does do harm. And one of the things that um, I think didn't play well in in John and John's and my um, you know kind of participation in in collegiate sports is we didn't play by those rules of white solidarity. We called some people out, and that's not that doesn't go over well in an institution that's really you know it's thriving on people kind of protecting each other from really naming some of those dynamics and that that's how this thing keeps rolling and keeps moving and keeps working for people. I think we do know how to respond in those situations. And I think the fact that we don't is a lack of, of moral courage, but it's also the way we've been socialized as white people, which is there's this kind of unspoken it's all right in this room, right? We're we're all okay, right? And and until somebody says, I'm not okay with what you just said, then that that disruption of white solidarity is when things start to crumble one way or another. Um, and that's I think one of one of the things that needs to happen in collegiate sports. We've now spent an hour discussing this particular issue here on Going Deep. We've still just scratched the surface, so expect some future episodes about this particular issue on our show. Thanks for listening. Tell us what you think by emailing us at goingdeep@bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook as well and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.